Hello, and welcome to Ruth Bear's Witness, the mini podcast where you can listen to the stories I've shared in my blog posts. Thank you for joining me today to hear my blog post entitled, Marked on Souls and Maps. On Souls. A fellow student and I decided to go to the store. In the moment that we made the decision to do so, I had no idea that the route we chose along a busy thoroughfare in Bangalore, India would somehow mark me forever. Of that much, I am now certain. Along this faithful route, wading through the bustle of a city planted with a prolific jungle, I was stopped dead in my tracks at the sight of a dirty, disheveled mother with her naked infant. She was sitting on the sidewalk, picking bugs out of the baby's curly black hair as the child lay sleeping in her lap. The word malnutrition flashed across my mind, blurring my eyes as I immediately noticed there were no signs of baby fat on the spindly little legs resting on the hot pavement and no blanket. Next to them was an empty and very dirty baby bottle. I lost all sense of time and space. I cried out loud in the street as I grabbed my friend's hand for support. I'm not sure how long we stood there with our backs to the unfortunate pair with tears flooding as the smell of diesel exhaust suddenly made me want to vomit. We began to slowly walk away, but I found myself fretting the further we walked. I could not let a callus grow over this awful wound in my soul. We dug through our purses and pulled out an abundance of rupees. I rushed back and stooped down, dropping the money and a few tears into her pan. When I looked up into her face, I could see the woman was puzzled at my sadness. I touched her as I conjured up every fiber of my being to bless her and her hungry child with my God, and then I stood to walk away. But it didn't just end there. I was still reeling as we entered Bangalore Central to find the grocery store at the very top of the shopping mall. I was blinded by the shiny racks and perfectly polished floors and counters as full of all the wealth of any Nordstrom or Macy's I'd ever been to. I walked in little circles near the entryway, still trying to get my bearings. Shock had set in and I was unable to jump the chasm between these two extremes. I didn't know what to do. Was it all right for me to be in that store? Surely the woman I had seen would never be allowed near the front steps. How could this happen? It takes so little to feed a person and her nursing baby in India. Yet compared to so many hungry people, there are just a handful that can afford to buy the $20 gaudy bracelets I was staring at inside Bangalore Central. I had lost any sense of solid ground. In all the time I spent in Bangalore, I found myself seeking out the mothers with babies who are hungry. I could rarely walk away from that particular demographic without giving them something, anything of myself, even if it was just a smile and a temporary fix of a few rupees. I would have loathed myself by the end of the trip if I had not. Perhaps it is because I saw myself in each of them as I learned to really see their personhood. Any one of those mothers could have been me and I could have been her. To look away would create a callus and deep down I wanted to, to do more, but I was just a student studying social justice in a foreign country.
on maps. I think about that moment in my life in Bangalore, India over 14 years ago. I was marked in that moment when my heart broke. My innermost person was wounded for that mother. And looking back, I understand now why I was so incredibly thrown off balance, just shocked out of my wits. You see, I had never been to a place where extreme poverty and excessive wealth were juxtaposed in the cityscape. Not to this startling degree. I was accustomed to the segregation of neighborhoods in the United States. We have our wealthy suburban neighborhoods, our middle-class neighborhoods, and we have both urban and wealthy and poor neighborhoods and everything in between. And we also have the homeless. In India, there's no such thing as a homeless person. Those who live in tents or under tarps on the sidewalks are called pavement dwellers, and generations live in loving families right beneath the street lamps. My American white middle-class sensibilities were used to seeing different economic and racial groups clustered together. While I did not realize it at the time, this was by the design of policy in generations before mine. Redlining in the U.S. marked where blacks and other people of color lived and kept them out of white neighborhoods. There are actual maps of cities marked up according to color codes designating quote-unquote desirable neighborhoods, and black folks and people of color were barred from obtaining mortgages to buy homes in those places. These maps were created from the New Deal policies of the 1930s. Black Americans were still barred from purchasing homes for decades even after redlining was outlawed. Sometimes it still happens today. Maybe not even sometimes. It happens more than sometimes. The majority of American wealth is accumulated and passed down through home ownership. The impact crosses generations for good or for bad. And it still negatively impacts Black Americans today while securing futures for white Americans. The problem isn't just economic, it is social as well. I grew up in mostly white suburban neighborhoods. I did not see poverty much. If I did, it was in the poor part of town. I also didn't know very many people of color and the majority of my world was white. I did have a few friends of color, but that is how most of us live because redlining policies 50 years ago did that. People of color mostly live around other people of color and white people live mostly around white people. And so we are an us and them society. Yes, I know, there are always exceptions to the rule, but they are no more than that. So as a rule, we don't really see each other. On maps and souls. The neighborhood I live in today is pretty racially diverse, which is why I moved there. But most of my white friends and family do not know many people of color, or if they do, they do not have close relationships with them. But you see, I do. And if I have a multiracial family who has had many children of color live as foster siblings in my home, and then when you have relationships with people who do not look like you, the world begins to look very, very different than you originally thought. I grew up with no idea of the systems of oppression and racist policies that still impact entire communities today. White people do not see the negative impact of these systems, even those systems that were outlawed long ago, because they don't have to, and no one they know has seen it either. And yet they continue to ridicule and deny the painful past and present 
that is so very real. The lines between myself and people with this attitude grow even larger. And if white people really saw or experienced what communities of color often do, they would be outraged. They wouldn't stand for it. They wouldn't, they would take to the streets and march. Some would riot. For someone like me who sees, feels, smells, experiences systemic racism alongside my children, and I listen to the hurts of so many people I love who are crushed by it, I can't stand for it either. I can see myself in my friends of color just like I saw myself in the women in Southern India. I was born a white American just by chance. It's a humbling, painful, but beautiful moment when the veil is torn away. Maps mark what is contained and what is separate. But a marked soul, when those lines between yourself and this incredible world of humanity in all its suffering and all its glory blur into a misted reflection of God's image, that soul can never be the same. Thanks for joining me today. To read or hear more stories from Ruth Bear's Witness, visit my blog at ruthbearswitness.wordpress.com. Take good care and God bless.